If you would, open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. And then, if you would, as well, uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. John 8, we will look at at the beginning, and 1 Timothy, we will look at at the end of the sermon. We've been looking at the question, we've been examining and and trying to answer the question, why is it so hard to believe in today's world? Last Sunday, we looked at the matter of knowing, using our text here from John 8, a familiar text, one that is often quoted, at least part of it, even by unbelievers. Then you will know the truth, this is in verse number 34, and the truth will set you free. Sorry, verse number 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And while Christians may focus on the truth, we do believe in being set free, though, and unbelievers may focus on being set free, though they may speak of truth, as we saw last week, both, in fact, may share a mistaken view of what it means to know, knowing the truth. And by mistaken, I mean a view that is contrary to what we find in Scripture, certainly contrary to what Jesus intends. Christians may focus on truth as correct information, and moderns on freedom as the mark of modernity. To be modern is to be free, not only free from things, but free to do whatever one wishes. For many who read this verse, truth is the key idea, and certainly truth is the focus, I believe, of what Jesus is saying. Um, And yet, as I said, for others, freedom seems to be what this is all about. I would ask you to consider that, in fact, it is the verb to know that is the key. I am convinced that in the modern age there is a significant problem with this statement in that most people assume that they know what it means to know. In the modern age, we talked about this last week, we tend to think of knowledge as information, facts, bits of data, content, true statements. And while this is not exactly or completely false, if this is the only vision you have of knowledge, then there is a problem I've mentioned this last Sunday. We've seen in this series that in the modern world, reality has been disenchanted. It has become impersonal. Nature, instead of creation, is now seen as something to be studied, to be analyzed, to be dissected. And this orientation, in fact, reduces, it flattens out reality, if you wish, to ones and zeros, to impersonal bits. So much data to be collected. And the goal and knowing in the modern world then is to collect all of this information. And if you have all of this information, then in fact you can do away with mystery and you can gain comprehensive knowledge. But if we as God's people believe that creation, that reality is a gift from the creator, then as we saw, love is to be at the core of all things. It is not impersonal. It is not passive or inert. Knowing is to be deeply dynamic, ever new and surprising, never to be emptied of mystery. With this view, in fact, we must replace what modern people think of knowing as indifferent distance with intimate closeness or intimate care. If love is at the core of all things, if reality is at its core, the knowing is quite sensibly a responding gesture of love. 
We love in order to know. We need to ask ourselves, how does this affect our view of our text here in John 8.32? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let me stop a moment and just do a parenthesis here. Um, I want to say something that I could say, I think, at any point in this sermon and in this series. This is, in fact, a sermon, at least that's my hope, in a series of sermons, more than it is a critique of the surrounding culture. It may sound like that, that I'm up here uh, sort of railing against the surrounding culture. The purpose of the sermon is ultimately to point to the Savior, the one who gave his life in order to accomplish the redemption of his people and his creation. But like it or not, we are surrounded by a culture. And there is a real danger, as we read, as we said in our prayer of confession today, that we will make accommodations. We will, in fact, restate what is found in Scripture in terms acceptable or fitting within the culture. So that, for example, in the matter of knowing, as Christians, our knowing can cease to be rooted in love, as intended by the Creator, and can be reduced to simply a matter of information. So that knowing the truth simply means having the right information. Rather than being rooted in enriching and fulfilling relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian experience becomes sterile. It's stripped of the personal. It's stripped of mystery. It is stripped of joy in a deep and wondrous sense. And the Lord Jesus simply becomes an example. Someone who sacrificed himself... He is perhaps a redeemer, but not one with whom we have a deep personal relationship. And, just to take one example, if we take Rene Descartes' view, the individual, the disembodied mind as he saw it, is exalted to the supreme position of knowing, I think, therefore, I am. Well, there's a problem then, isn't there? We are not to be exalted to the supreme position in anything but even in knowing. As Paul told the Philippians, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there is more to what Descartes proposed. Separation of mind and body. And by the way, Descartes, I believe, was a Christian. This was not some raging atheist or pagan, but this is someone who was, in fact, making accommodations within his surrounding culture. He saw the mind and body as, in fact, separate. And the mind is unextended thought. The body is unminded physical extension. So the knower is in the first category, that is, in the mind. We know in the mind And the known is the mindless physical reality that is out there. And so you have a radical separation between the one who knows in his or her mind and the thing that is known out there in reality, in nature. And how are we to understand the words of Jesus from this point of view? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is, you, the knower, will know the truth, the known, And the known will set you, the knower, free. Well, this makes little sense from Descartes' point of view. Because the mind is what is seen as intrinsically interesting and meaningful. And the world, or the known, is neither. So that I become the important, I'm the one who knows. And what I know 
is secondary. The truth, the truth that will set me free. This is but one example. And it is one way in which Christians have been taken in uh, by this, in part because there is this false assumption that there is a separation between the flesh and the spirit. When we hear the word spiritual, we tend to associate it immediately with the immaterial, something that is not tangible, cannot be perceived by the senses. We don't know what to make of our bodies, Uh, because we believe that the immaterial is in fact more important, of greater value. The mind is of greater value than anything. And so we have taken a mistaken view of separation of body and spirit and bought into Descartes' view of the the knower and the known. Uh, One of my professors at UCLA, has written about Mexico in the 16th century, makes the point that when the Spaniards first arrived in Mexico, they saw or observed things, cultural and political realities, that reminded them of things back home. That is, when they got there, they're like, this is just like it is back home. And so, the local population, which did have, in fact, things similar to what they had in Spain, um, each side basically misunderstood each other. They were like, oh, we have this, you have that, it's the same thing. In fact, they were not the same thing. And my professor goes on to call this double mistaken identity. This assumption that, oh, yeah, you have that, we have this, and aren't they exactly the same or pretty close? And in fact, they weren't very close at all. And as Christians, we may find things in Scripture where we're like, oh, this is just like what we find in the culture. And in fact, we're talking about night and day, things that are quite different. I think that this is a real danger in the church in which we have certain assumptions which seem to be in common with the surrounding culture and it leads to a wrong understanding of things. I will mention two today. The first is certainty or objectivism or objectivity. This is one of those areas in which I think the church and the culture seem to have common ground but in fact They should not. One could make the case that certainty is important, if not central, to what Jesus said in our text. Knowledge, it is argued, must be true. It must accurately portray the way that things are. It must not be mistaken. It must be correct. Thus, for the modern reader, certainty is the ideal. It is absolutely necessary. With this in mind, the character and domain of knowledge are, in fact, restricted. Because how can you be certain about certain things, if you wish? Well, only the things about which you have information, statements, or proof. All other forms of knowing, if you wish, or awareness are done away with. Because you can't be certain. Why are modern people so obsessed with certainty? Well, you could argue that this is the purest form of knowing. When you have something right there, 2 plus 2 is 4, that we can be certain of. This is seen as the highest form of knowing. But it has been suggested, and I think I would agree, that the quest for certainty is, in fact, rooted in the desire to avoid personal responsibility, to avoid risk. That is to say, 
if I cannot be certain about something, then I can't be responsible. I can't make a commitment because I'm not absolutely certain. And because I'm not absolutely certain, then I, I can't know and therefore I will not make a commitment. You see this in personal relationships, I think, uh, where people are like, I, I think I love this person, but I can't be absolutely certain. And because there is no certainty, there cannot be knowledge, and therefore there cannot be any responsibility or commitment. And one, one will not take a risk. Why will I take a risk if, in fact, I cannot be certain of what that thing is? If we need to be perfectly certain about something to accept it, then we will not take any risk because we are not certain. Nor do we hold ourselves to be personally responsible for our lack of commitment. Why would you expect me to commit to something of which I am not certain? As one author put it, certainty conveniently opens the back door to escape to irresponsibility. One could argue that the desire for certainty is tied to our longing for personal control. See, in the pre-modern world, it was believed that God was in control. But as God is pushed away, as the transcendent is lost, somebody needs to be in control. And we want to, to be that. If we're not transcendent, at least we are in control. And certainty gives us that sense of control. And this ideal of certainty leads us to approach reality in a particular way, to view things in a particular way. It leads us to view reality as impersonal, as disembodied rationality. If you wish, mathematics. Two plus two is four. Of that I can be certain. And it leads us to see knowing as a passive dispassionate registering of data. And this is tied to the whole business of objectivism, which sees the world simply made up of impersonal objects. As one writer put it, if we can only know what is available to our senses and our logic, then reality is reduced to those narrow terms. The self creates the world by forcing it into the limits of our own capacity to know. I can only know these things if they're in this particular thing. And so, the field of knowledge, I would argue in the pre-modern world, we would say, well, they were backward. It's the Dark Ages. And yet, their perception of knowing, I think, was as much wider. We have much more information, but ours is much more narrow because of this notion of certainty. Such a view ends up deeply affecting the individual, the knower. It can lead to weariness. can lead to withdrawal and cynicism. It can also lead to a distorted image of ourselves, a knower who is immune from the impact of reality, which might, in fact, transform us. How does this affect us as the people of God? I would argue that we believe there is more to reality than what can be perceived by the senses. We believe in a transcendent creator. So one could say, well then, Damon, this is not a problem for us. But I think there are at least two possible problems. The first is, we may say and truly believe that we hold to absolute truth. 
and that one must hold to absolute truth or there is no truth at all. Absolute truth is seen as consisting of a complete set of rational propositions about everything. And absolute truth is seen as the antidote, if you wish. It is seen as the only alternative to relativism, skepticism, subjectivism, and more. Many believe that if a Christian does not believe in absolute truth, then he or she is not a Christian. Certainty or nothing. Well, then there's a problem, isn't there? There's a serious problem. The second possible problem is that in presenting or defending the gospel, we may in fact buy into the ideas of certainty and objectivity. That is to say, if in in fact someone came up to you, and, and try to imagine this, someone comes up to you and says, what is the gospel? Prove to me that the gospel is true. If we're not careful, we will be tempted to sort of slip into this idea of absolute truth, objective truth. I believe in truth, by the way. I'm not, I'm not waffling on that. But the notion that I can, in fact, from objective propositions, convince you of the truth. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free because I will give you all of these propositions. Well, then we have reduced the truth to a very, very narrow thing. Something quite narrow. As I said last week, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And several days later, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. The truth is not simply a matter of propositions. If we're not careful, we will give a purely rational account of the gospel. And then it ceases to be the good news that it is. In a conversation last Sunday after the service, it was suggested that what I've been talking about for these past few Sundays in dealing with faith and modernity, this is what Dave Zess has entitled it for the church website, that it has to do with modernity, which is true for my generation, Dan and Lonnie's generation, maybe Tom's, but for those of you who are younger, you no longer live in the modern world. And so the things I've been talking about are perhaps less impactful for you than they are for those of us who are older. Let me deal with the second thing then and do that in light of the present generation. The second danger, or the second thing is, the first is certainty, the second is absence of certainty or subjectivism. A brief aside, modernism and postmodernism are popular terms and they are extremely difficult to define, particularly modern, uh, postmodernism. One writer put it this way, they are, that is postmodernism and modernism, are cultural zeitgeist, okay? That is taste, outlook, spirit, characteristic of a period or generation. More than philosophical positions. So if we were to try to give you the philosophy of postmodernism, it would be incredibly difficult to do. Modernism talks about a cultural approach associated with reason. That is, these things can be reasoned out. Rationality is seen as supreme. And this is what we've just been looking at in the matter of certainty and objectivism. Postmodernism is properly associated with relativism, skepticism, and subjectivism. One of the great difficulties in dealing with postmodernism is that it is not only difficult to define, but there are many variations within it. To grossly oversimplify, one finds that in this view, one simply cannot know. 
and modernity one can know. That is the that's what modernity is all about, that we can know. And if you look at the modern period, in, human knowledge has in fact exploded. We can know. Well, postmodernism basically says we cannot know, cannot truly know. And if this is so, then what are we to make of the words of Jesus in our text? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We live in a time that is marked by both modernism and postmodernism. We find the obsession with certainty and the rejection of certainty at the same time, oftentimes in the same breath. That is, if you can't be certain about something, then you have no responsibility in the matter. And since you can't be certain about anything, then you're not responsible for anything. I know that this is an oversimplification. Um, but I think that this is reflected in the elevation of tolerance to the position of the highest virtue. The person who holds to some certainty is seen as intolerant. The person who is t tolerant has no sense of certainty, except in the matter of tolerance. And just consider how that in the past few years, it's happened rather quickly, matters of social and ethical boundaries, how they've been quickly swept away. In which, in the modern period, were considered basic certainties, things like gender, are now considered fluid. And how are we to understand the words of Jesus? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How can or how does this affect us as the people of God? I think there are two dangers. The first is we might cling to the past in contrast to the present. The way things used to be, the good old days, the way things used to be. That's what we long for rather than looking to scripture and a biblical sense of truth. And the second danger is we might be tempted to see uncertainty as a sign of humility. Certainly those who claim certainty can be accused of being quite arrogant and quite proud. And so to reject that pride, one might say, I'm embracing humility. I'm not really certain of anything. See how humble I am because I am not certain. These are two dangers with postmodernism, uncertainty. Let me add two other things. The danger with modernism, I think, is boredom. Just sheer boredom. If we think that knowledge is information, then one could argue that we live in paradise right now. We have information readily available to us, plenty of information delivered instantly via the Internet. But modernism takes as a given that we are, in fact, to keep our emotions in check. We are not to get involved with the information. And so little wonder that people are bored because there's no personal commitment. There's no passion. Those things are seen as quite subjective. And so let's be objective. I'm over here. The information is over there. I will gather this information, but I will not be emotionally uh, touched or tied to it in any way. Things like subjective uh, subjectivism and things like this need to be left at the door. We are to dispassionately glean information. We are to dispassionately convey this information. 
and when we are to dispassionately apprehend the information and in the end we end up bored. Because it suggests that knowledge has in fact little to do, well, it is not meaningful in the course of life. It's simply information. The danger, on the other hand, with postmodernism is hopelessness. So you might find in the same individual, perhaps in yourself, that in one moment you are bored and at the next there's a sense of helplessness. People can think that knowledge, to be knowledge, must be information and facts, statements and proofs, but that you can't really know things. You can't really possess knowledge. We can't really know anything at all. The receding hope of certainty lives on as disillusionment. We simply become raving skeptics. But we saw last Sunday that in Scripture, love is the beginning of knowing. And the goal of that love and that knowing is communion. The communion between the knower and the known. Communion is the fulfillment of love. And so to know the truth is not you are over here knowing and there's the truth over there. It in fact speaks of communion. And since Jesus Christ is the truth, it speaks of communion between his people and himself. And this leads, this orientation brings about what is promised in Scripture, and that is peace and rest. We can be at peace with our efforts to know, with the long journey of learning and knowing, with the incompleteness of our knowing, that's fine, with our dependence upon others and upon creation itself. We can be confident in our contribution and yet confident of risk. We may delight in the adventure. We may hope for joy or hope for and joy in deepening communion with reality. And I would suggest to you that such communion should be there, not boredom based on certainty or helplessness based on the absence of certainty, but knowing based on love. Our second text is found in Second Timothy chapter one. And here at the end of the sermon, I'd like, if you could look at that, I'd read it to you. I used this as a text earlier in this series. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says in verse 12, Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. When we read this verse and others like it, that touch on knowing what is our stance, How do we read this? How do we understand this? Is our stance that of certainty? And we seem to hear that in Paul. He seems rather certain of what he knows. But is it merely information, a detached knowing, cold and impersonal? This is really possible for Christians. I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon said of previous generations to him in, in England. He said that of those men that they were all sound... That is, in doctrine, they were all sound, and they were all sound asleep. That is to say, they had the information, but they had fallen asleep. It had no impact on their lives. So when we read what Paul says, are we thinking certainty? Or is our stance that of being subjective? That what Paul's saying is what he feels. It's sort of an inner feeling, an inner reality, but, but no objective reality to it. Or do we understand that we are to see this as love? 
with communion as its goal. The communion of the knower and the known and the fulfilling of love. Paul says, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. There is affection there. There is love there. It isn't merely information. It isn't merely a feeling. It isn't certainty versus uncertainty. It is, in fact, rooted in love. As God's people living when and where we do, we face many temptations, and one is to take the world's view of knowledge and then come to Scripture thinking that's what it means. When in fact we should come to Scripture, learn what it means to know, and then from that read the rest of Scripture and have a better understanding. And then come to understand in a profound way what Jesus means when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful that when we stand before you, we will not be given a theological exam or a cultural exam. We will not be tested on our knowledge of facts or information. When we stand before you, you will have brought us there because of your great love that you demonstrated in the person of your Son, who gave his life that we might have life. And when we stand before you, there will be wondrous communion. Communion that is only now beginning in this life. We can have a sense of that in prayer, in worship, in reading your word, in fellowship with your people. We begin to have a sense of love and communion and knowing the truth as we should. We face the temptation to either reject the world or to adopt its view. You've put us here for a particular reason. May we be your people as we should be. And from your word, may we come to see what it means to know. Surrounded by those who are certain and those who have no certainty at all by those who are bored and those who feel helpless. May we reflect the love of Christ as we deal with them day by day. I thank you that you've gathered us here this first day of summer, this Father's Day, to worship you. May we have a sense of your presence as we leave this place and as we walk through the world in the coming week. We do pray in a special way for Stacy and her baby. Things would go well. Watch over them and the doctors as well. And now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of the love of Christ in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.